Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com is Arsecast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra. As always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, it is a goodly morning, so goodly morning to you. Goodly morning to you too, Andrew. We're getting used to these. Yeah, I like it. I like it. The goodlier, the better. It's not like a novelty that's wearing off, you know? No, no, no. I don't think it will. Um... Uh, it w- like heroin or something, <laughs> you know. It's it's Moorish. It's a Moorish feeling. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe. Maybe the it's it's a cleaner, perhaps more healthy way of getting high. Um, True. At the same time, though, you're utterly dependent on other people. So, uh, no, it is good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, but what, this is a particularly good one because obviously it takes us into the international break yeah. and recently. Like we played on a Friday night and we got to enjoy a whole weekend off the back of that. We we played Saturday lunchtime and again, you sort of get a weekend of basking. And these games before the international break are crucial because going into them off a disappointment is such a horrid flat feeling for a fortnight um, that I'm very relieved and pleased that we got the win we needed. Yeah, me too. And I think this this is quite an interesting game because I think... It's one of those where we absolutely deserve to win. There's no question yeah. in my mind that we were the better team, that we deserve to win. We took the three points. We kept a clean sheet. There are loads of things we can take from this, and I'm sure loads of things that we're going to discuss over the next little while. But also, um, you know, things... It's not perfect. We're still a long way from perfect. There are issues that this team has. But I think mm-hmm. what's what's good about this is that we can go into this international break. Mikel Arteta can sit down with his staff, look over what we've done in the last few weeks, see the good things, maybe touch on some of the things which aren't quite right as well, but do it in a in a way which I you know avoids the drama, avoids the the spotlight in a way because we have racked up some uh, some points, we've racked mm-hmm. up wins, mm-hmm. we haven't lost since the opening three games of the season. There are loads of things that we can be positive about. And I think when you're trying to assess where you are as a team, what you've got to still do, being able to avoid the the, the crisis management stuff, if you like, is a good thing. You know, I'd like us to keep going because um, we've got some momentum and the international break perhaps isn't the most helpful one. But maybe there is also a school of thought that says, Look, a bit of time to stop, take stock, assess where you are, 
and then think about how you're going to continue that maybe isn't the worst thing either. No, I mean, arguably an international break saved our season, you know, uh, uh, a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, in terms of what that enabled Mikel Arteta to do on the training ground, getting a f- few new players into the team. Um, and that was the start of this 10-game mm. unbeaten run. So, yes, fine-tuning certainly uh, is an ongoing process. This is a, a work in progress, isn't it, this team? And mm. I think what's pleasing and what's really bringing people together is that they they feel like they can see the work that's happening now, you know, and they can mm. see the progress that's being made. But it is an ongoing uh, process, to use everyone's favourite word, and there's still certainly ways that in which Arsenal can improve. But like you, I thought this was a game they deserve to win. And, and my suspicion is, on another day, they probably win slightly more comfortably. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's also one of those games where maybe in the not too distant past, we they might win. We, we, yeah. yeah, we don't win. We don't win yeah. this game, or we drop points, or we let in a goal, or we don't score the goal that we need. You know, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know there are there are swings and roundabouts to this uh, whole thing. So let's talk about the game and let's talk about the the big team news bit, which was that Thomas Partey was absent. He has a mm-hmm. tight groin. We don't know if he's going to go away on international duty, uh, but clearly wasn't risked. I like that Mikel Arteta chose Ainsley Maitland-Niles. Someone made the point on Twitter, actually. Uh, I apologize um, to that person. And we think of Maitland-Niles. Oh, I have it here. It's um, Adeteo Babarinde, who's at SL33Nick. And he said, from the starting lineup yesterday, Maitland-Niles at 24 years old was the third oldest player on the pitch. Now, uh, we still think of him as like a fairly young academy graduate, and he is to some extent. Twenty four is still relatively young, but what we're seeing from Mikel Arteta is faith being put in players who are of a certain age. Where in the past, and I don't think unreasonably, he perhaps has been accused of of how do I say this properly? Um, choosing experience rather than youth slash potential. You know, there have been team selections. There have been some players who've been involved far too much because of their age. It seems because of their age, not necessarily because of their form or their talent or what they could bring to the team. So he could have chosen Mohamed Elneny yesterday, a safe, experienced option in midfield in a very young team. But he picked Maitland-Niles, and I like that about that team selection because it tallies with the things that we're encouraged by the things that we're looking at as positives that have grown over the last, you know, couple of months are based around these young players. And the manager has lent into that when it comes to replacing one of his key experienced men. Yeah. And I think last season he would pick Elneny in this game and he did pick Elneny in these kind of games and this season, it's been Maitland-Niles above him in the pecking order. And to be fair, when Partey was out, the very first game of this run was that home game against Norwich, wasn't it? And Thomas Partey mm. wasn't back. And it was Laconga and Maitland-Niles then too. So there's been a consistency about that. Um, that said, as much as I was pleased by that decision, I was a little bit worried just because I kind of think of Partey... Abemiang and more recently Lacazette as kind of the grown-ups in the team, mm. you know, the the dads, as it were. Um, and without him, 
Uh, he's, a, he's an important structural piece and when he's good typically Arsenal are good so you know I always worry when we're going to be without him uh, even uh, against a side like Watford who aren't any great shakes yeah I, I thought Maitland-Niles did really well I, I, he had yeah. a period in the first half where he kind of went missing uh, for a little while and I wasn't sure quite what had happened there or where he was or what he was being asked to do, whether he was being um, told to fill in in that kind of left half space, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to um, the focus, the concentration, the discipline of his performance, it was all there, you know. The um, the stats back up what he did uh, on that pitch. I'm just going to get them up here because I think they're worth talking about. Nine ball recoveries. He won five out of five tackles, two interceptions as well. He was involved in that move for what should have been the first goal, the, the, the disallowed goal from Bakayo Saka. Defensively very good, strong, you know, Arteta said afterwards, I'm seeing a different Maitland-Niles, which is certainly um, true, I think, you know, given that he is playing in midfield and he looks like he wants to to take his chance. I was impressed with him yesterday. Nevertheless, I, I think there was still something a little bit missing from midfield. Um, Maitland-Niles and Lukonga, two relatively young players. I thought they both acquitted themselves well, but when it came to perhaps just providing that little bit of extra thrust, a little bit of precision uh, to get into the final third, it wasn't quite there. And that's where I think we miss Partey, um, which is not to downplay what Maitland-Niles or Lukonga did, but you can still miss um, what Partey brings, even if the, uh, the replacements come in and do well. Definitely. And it would be weird to not miss Thomas Partey. I think he's that sort of player. Uh, but Maitland-Niles, I think he was my man of the match against Leeds in the Cup. Um, and I thought, you know, Sky gave him the man of the match in this game, I understand. And I, I can completely see that. I thought he was mm. very good. He did do a bit of that dropping into the kind of left half space. That hasn't gone away entirely. You know, I know that we've talked about the central midfielders being closer together, but mm. in the last game, Lukonga was doing bits of that against Leicester and Yesterday it was Maitland Niles. Um, I don't think it's quite there's quite as much emphasis on on it, but it's still there. Um, but I was really impressed with him in the one on ones. You know, in the challenges, he's so quick to the ball. Mm. Um, he's got great balance. The way he stays upright when he wins the ball is really impressive. So athletic. It's just funny, isn't it? You know, he wanted desperately to go to Everton to play as a fullback. Um, and now he's at Arsenal uh, getting a fair bit of game time in midfield, which is mm. actually his preferred position. I still have this slight sense that it's maybe a bit of a marriage of convenience. I'm not convinced that Ainsley Maitland-Niles is at Arsenal for the long term. Mm. But I think what he's doing is really important, especially when you bear in mind the African Cup of Nations. And I think that's the reason he's still at the club, because Arsenal have seen that coming and know they need bodies they need people in central midfield at that time and um, in that respect this was a really good performance but I think you're right they did miss Partey it was a different test for Arsenal because Mm. you know we've played a lot of teams who've pressed us really high you know you think of Leicester Brighton um, doubtless there are others and we've had to and to a certain extent been able to play through them you know we've all talked about eye-catching passes from Aaron Ramsdale and things like that that Mm. wasn't really on in this game because Watford sat off 
And I thought that was where we missed Partey, you know, just having someone to find those gaps because Mm. it wasn't always easy. No, it wasn't. And I felt at times like maybe we needed another passer on the pitch, somebody like Martin Odegaard who... Um, you know, has the ability and the craft to make the passes. I, you know, Lacazette again worked really hard, um, but he only made 12 passes in his entire 70 minutes on the pitch, mm. you know. So for all that he can bring, and he, like, I don't think anyone in this team wins free kicks the way Lacazette wins free kicks because of the way no. he puts himself about. It's a, it's a useful, uh, it's a useful thing to have. But just the way that Watford were set up, I thought maybe Odegaard in this game might have been a better option from the start. And then you can bring on Lacazette uh, as and when you need him. As it turned out, though, Lacazette was obviously involved in, in, in a couple of really uh, big moments. Um, there was the disallowed goal where he tried to lob the keeper. That should be an Aubameyang goal. Um, And uh, it was quite funny. (laughs) It was quite funny to see uh, the reaction on Twitter when uh, the goal was ruled out for offside. A lot of people were like, well, how is it offside? The defender's there. The defender's (laughs) right there. I mean, look, he's like miles onside. And everyone is just so conditioned to the idea that the goalkeeper is going to be on his line that they forget mm. there's got to be two players. So the goalkeeper's on his line. There's the defender. Nobody really noticed the fact that the goalkeeper was, <laughs> was ahead of the ball. Um, but I mean, remember, these Arsenal fans were reared watching David Espina, a goalkeeper who would frequently stand behind his own <laughs> line. So that may have been playing into their thing. <laughs> Maybe so. But look, that was a poor touch from Aubameyang because if he'd just taken it down and slotted it home, as he should have, a player of his quality should be able to do, that's 1-0 Arsenal. Um yeah, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I was at the other end uh, and I celebrated that goal very heartily yeah. um, before it was somewhat embarrassingly chalked off. And I couldn't see the position of the goalkeeper from where I was stood. It was just yeah. a sort of crowd of bodies. But uh, I have to say that what was interesting and, and this was a sort of recurrent theme for me in the game is that I really feared actually for this team when that goal was disallowed, because recently we've talked about how important the early goals have been and the way they've enabled us to sustain or at least capitalise on Mm. early momentum. And when that was disallowed, I thought, ah, you know, we might be in trouble here. And I thought the crowd might go a bit quiet, but it was really noticeable to me. I don't think they did. Not around me. Did it seem like they did on TV? It seemed a bit on TV like it was flat. You know, there was a flatness, not necessarily... um, to the game itself, it was a little bit flat. We weren't quite as effervescent as we have been in the opening stages. And I know what you're saying. Like, I I, I was both fearing this and also kind of interested to see what would yeah, happen, same. you know? Um, Curious. It, it, like, it could be just a... It could be just whoever was the the director on Sky, you know, because the last few games, maybe the early goals, they really do ramp up the atmosphere and there's a sort of celebrity, you know what I'm trying to say here? Celebratory. Celebratory. Yes, that's the word. Um, You know, atmosphere and and people are singing and happy and and comfortable and confident because of the position that we're in in a game. And when it's still nil-nil and you miss a chance and you, you have a goal disallowed, you miss a penalty, you can sort of feel the nerves a little bit. So it did seem a little bit flat. Uh, flatter on TV but you know you were there it certainly wasn't Villa and it certainly wasn't Spurs you Mm. know in terms of atmosphere but it was more that um, uh, you know I've been part of some Arsenal crowds in recent years that have been pretty antsy at times Mm -hmm. and I didn't get that sense you know it wasn't like a misplaced pass was producing 
groans and people throwing their arms up in the air around me at any rate that was and i thought to myself well that's i guess what a good run does you know it, it provides a degree of assurance and i'll come back to it when we get mm. to the penalty because there was a particular instance around the penalty that okay well me. let's talk about the penalty i mean i just i don't want to dwell too much on this but i i'm still slightly flummoxed this morning as to how Danny Rose went through that entire game without being booked. There was a challenge mm-hmm. on Saka where he went in with a high foot. There was one, a really, really deliberate trip on, I can't remember who it was he fouled, but you know some of the yellow cards that he gave, there was one to Lokonga, there was one to one of the, the I think it could have been Sissoko. It was a really, really... Um, I mean, it wasn't. It was a foul, but it wasn't a yellow card. You know what I mean? Some of the yellow right. cards he was handing out to uh, players on both sides yesterday were—I don't know. I, you know, you you need a little bit of physical contact in the game. You can't just dish out yellow cards willy-nilly for those kind of fouls, in my opinion. But then Danny Rose did things much worse. I mean, the one on Lacazette—I was in mind of Martin Keown on Ruud van Nistelrooy. That is verging on violent conduct the way he came in there and the way he held his arm out and made sure that his arm made contact with Lacazette and even then the referee was like "Uh, not sure about giving this penalty until I'm sure somebody just said in his ear "Uh, you better point to the fucking spot quick because you're going to look like a fucking idiot if you don't yeah I mean I was grateful for Danny Rose's ineptitude in that moment. Um, but yeah, I agree. I can't believe he survived without getting booked, especially because Bukayo Saka, mm. I thought, really had the better of him on that flank, unsurprisingly. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there were a couple of Arsenal bookings I thought were fair enough. I mean, there was one for Tommy Asu, I think, where he like tripped a guy on the break. The, the thing is, the Arsenal ones were... Um, to stop counterattacks in a very clear way, whereas the mm-hmm. I think the Watford ones, their greatest crime was sort of repeat offences. Um, I, I mean, the guy who eventually got sent off, I don't know how many fouls he committed in the game, but it felt like, you know, a dozen. Um, so, yeah, it, it, that was a bit curious. But I liked, uh, you know, Lacazette, it's an interesting one. I, he's, he didn't make many passes, didn't have a huge contribution on the ball. But I do think... <laughs> A lot of what he brings to the team is this ability to go into collisions and win fouls, like you say. Mm. Um, and he is a little bit, uh, I guess, a bit shithousey, really, of, of, of the Arsenal players. It's almost like he's sort of turned 30 and he's thought, right, my physical gifts may be uh, leaving me, <laughs> but I can still contribute here. And there's a canniness about the way he's operating. I mean, when we get to our goal, I think he's involved in taking the throw in, which, um, Mm. you know, is is its own story. But yeah, I do feel like he's bringing a bit of the dark arts to the team. And that's not the worst thing for a side that, as Arteta put it, can be a bit naive. Yeah, I mean, we are regularly dismissed as a bit too nice or a bit too soft. Naive is uh, one way of putting it. Um, Immature, another way, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I know exactly what you're saying about Lacazette. Uh, You know, there is something that... uh, you can't really measure it with stats, but I think, you know, there are certain aspects of his game where, you know, if you're playing in that position behind the striker, I think uh, it's not to be critical of Lacazette per se, but I think you need the player in that position to make more than 12 passes in 70 minutes if you want to be, uh, you know, a team that creates chances and attacks well. But at the same time, you know, he won the penalty. He was involved in that disallowed goal. He took mm-hmm. the throw in, like you say. Maybe another player wouldn't have thrown it straight to I an don't Arsenal know if they player. Would. You know? Yeah. 
Um, like would Tommy Asu have done it? He seems like a very nice, polite young man who understands the conventions of the game. He might well have just thrown it back to to um, to Watford, whereas Lacazette was like, mm. "Fuck it." So, yeah. So, what, what were you going to tell me about the the penalty? Um, ah, just that. Uh, uh, we'll talk about the penalty itself, but just that when Aubameyang missed it, um, it was very noticeable and very audible. That almost immediately the fans were singing his name and. Mm. You know, there were, I think there would have been times last season where that wouldn't have happened and where there would have been more kind of opprobrium around a, a second consecutive missed penalty in home games. But there was a real sort of groundswell within the stadium of support. And I just thought that spoke to um, the unity, as Michael Arteta might put it, that exists right now between players and fans. And I thought that was... Uh, mm. encouraging and important yeah. but yeah. I wish he'd scored I wish he'd <laughs> scored too and I don't think it was a, a great penalty and I, I think we might leave Aubameyang discussion to the second half of the show because we do have some some questions about that but basically um, it was a day um, it was as bad a day I think you can have as a striker to be honest mm, um, not you his know, day at all, missing no. a penalty missing that first chance then of course there was the issue with the um, the Odegaard shot which was I think was going in I've been watching the replays of it again and again and again this morning and my sense is even though I can't say 100% but I feel like 92.63% certain that that ball would have gone in off the post anyway um, without Aubameyang touching it you know so I he may be desperate to make up for the fact that he missed a penalty but he should know better than to um, go for the ball when he's standing in such an offside position. He knew he was offside, you know? So there was a lot about his um, performance yesterday, which wasn't good. Um, I, I thought, at the very least, though, he he worked hard. I thought he worked hard. I, I don't think he was um, he has found wanting. Really. Yeah, you yeah. know, and there was one, one late on, and I'm sure we'll talk about this spell of the game, um, when it was 1-0. And when, not that we were hanging on or anything like that, but towards the final stages of the game where I think we we allowed Watford a little bit too much possession and territory, there was one moment when Watford had a shot and the man who got back to block the follow-up inside the D was Aubameyang. I think he yep. got fouled in the process. So I had no issues with the way that he worked, but clearly at the other end of the pitch where we know he's capable of a lot better, he he was not at the races. No, he wasn't. Um, and like you say, a few people have asked questions about his performance and his standing more generally, so we'll deal with that in more depth then. But mm. I, I just think this was uh, one of those days where kind of you know everything that went wrong for him could really... So look, the goal, <laughs> the goal. You know what? Were you aware inside the ground at the time? Were you aware that there was an element of contentiousness to this, um, in in terms of the the convention not being followed? Because I wasn't. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't notice. I thought that maybe there was. Um, some focus on the Maitland Niles collision with Sissoko, which. You know, I think is 50-50, you know, if it had been given a free kick, I don't know that you could argue too much about it, you know. But the, no. the whole putting the ball out of play thing just completely passed me by. 
I actually did notice it in the moment, and I have to say I forgot it as soon as uh, the ball hit the back of the net. So I, I hadn't connected those two <laughs> incidents in my mind because I remember Danny Rose putting the ball out um, and feeling like it was unnecessary. I remember thinking mm. like... And it was a, a real it, it sort of cheek as well. Like he he did. I think he quite deliberately put it out near his own goal because he was thinking, well, they won't play on from here. Do you know what I mean? Like if he boots it up to the halfway line, I think the accepted convention is yeah, yeah, yeah. Arsenal can just take the throw in, but by just playing it out wherever he was, ten yards from his own goal line, he kind of put a moral quandary in Arsenal's hands. But I remember. I think there were two or three incidents similar to that in the build-up to it. And there was a kind of mounting frustration among the fans and certainly among the players. And I remember sort of uh, inwardly or possibly outwardly applauding when Lacazette went over and um, quickly took the throw. And I, I felt it was kind of just desserts, really, for Watford. Um, sure. But how would... Uh being honest, how would you feel if it was the other way around? Like, would you? I be... would want them all banned for life. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm exactly the same. I'm not going to be uh, hypocritical about this because I think I would be. Look, uh, I think you could look at your own player and say, "Don't do that." And if there's one, not one lesson, but one of the lessons that Mikel Arteta can take from this game is when we're or if we're in a similar position, do not do what Danny Rose did because. Let's be honest, it's now fucking open season on Arsenal <laughs> in similar situation. Like, nobody will say, well, you know, uh, we're following your lead, basically. We're doing what mm. you did, so tough shit. Um, yeah, I think I would be annoyed if it was the other way around, uh, but I'm not annoyed, or I'm not worried at all about Watford or how they react to it. Look, they played a very physical game yesterday. They left a few on some of our players. I think they had 19 fouls to our six. So their strategy, yeah. which was not necessarily um, uh, like super, super dangerously physical, but it was physical. It was designed to stop momentum. It was designed to, to sort of halt us when we were trying to build momentum. Um, and it was quite deliberate. So, look, I've got no sympathy whatsoever for them. Um, but I think it's it's something that Mikel Arteta needs to hammer home to his players because when it happens again, or if it happens again, or if we're, if we're the Watford in the next um, scenario, we're not getting any sympathy from anybody, you know? No, true. I mean, it, like I say, it was slightly strange for Rose to put it out where he did um, because even if we just sort of throw it back to Watford they're still penned very deep in their own territory mm. I think honestly he did that thinking well they'll now just stand up off and sort of you know uh, observe the etiquette but uh, I, I didn't mind it at all from Arsenal I have to say and, and if that player was an Arsenal player and he was really hurt really injured mm. then I think I would have strong objections but I just don't believe that was the case and in that instance my sympathy even to our own team I think would be limited um, it's very clear what they were trying to do and Arsenal punished them for it and I don't know if you saw but uh, Carnu himself was actually in attendance yesterday um, so I thought it was a fitting tribute, really, to him that we should go on and score. <laughs> yeah, well, look, it's it's one of those things where you say, leave it to the referee. 
you know, to stop the game. And I think that's the right thing. But at the same time, when the referee is as halfway inept as Kevin Friend was, you know, it's <laughs> it's another a- angle to all this. But look, we played on, kept the ball. Ben White did really well. It broke for Emil Smith-Rowe, who lashed it home from inside the D, a little bit of a deflection. He's had a couple of... Um, couple of helpful touches i think it would be Did fair to say i couldn't see that from, i think uh, so i think so uh maybe i should just watch it again here i think it took a very slight deflection yeah um because it possibly it just- did i liked what ben white did i thought there was you know because the passing lanes out from the back were much more uh difficult to find because watford was so deep i think ben white realized and accepted um the responsibility that he was going to have to carry the ball quite a lot in the mm. game. And he did that with mixed results, but generally he took on that responsibility and, you know, he, he did indeed get forward in the build-up to this goal. Um, it was interesting in the first half in the stadium, there were a lot of conversations on the field, you know, Ramsdale talking to Laconga, Arteta talking to Ramsdale, mm. Arteta talking to Maitland-Niles, just about how we were progressing the ball or not mm. maybe well enough. And, um, yeah, I thought White handled his part in that well and he he was one of our better players on the day. Big contribution to the goal. And Smith Rowe arrives on it beautifully. Have you have you determined yet whether or not it took a nick? I think it did, yeah, because of the way that the ball um is spinning as it goes into the goal. It's hard to see one hundred percent from the angles that mm. I'm watching, but the way that the ball is spinning or or not spinning actually just suggests that it did get a nick off the the underside of the the defender's leg or something like that. But look, he had to be there. He he had to be aware. He had to be on his toes. Um, that's three games in a row now he scored in the Premier League. They were talking about this, you know, players under 21 who have done that for Arsenal, Cesc mm. Fabregas, Jose Antonio Reyes and Nicolas Anelka. So that's nice company to be keeping when it comes to goal scoring, you know. So I, I think it's fantastic to watch what's happening with Smith Rowe. You know, this mm. this um, this kid who's only been in the team less than a year, really, on a regular basis, who felt confident enough to ask for the number 10 in the summer, got the number 10 shirt for all that that entails at Arsenal. We all know the names. We know the pressure that comes with that number because there is, at the end of the day, there is pressure. You know, you, you've got to create, you've got to score goals, you've got to, you've got to deliver for your team there is an onus on you as the number 10 at Arsenal Football Club to deliver and he's delivering Um, it's great to see because I think we're watching a really special talent blossom before our eyes Um, and it's a match winning contribution from him yesterday yeah and to roll out a cliche I mean if you don't buy a ticket you don't win the lottery you know and Mm. he's getting in the positions he's taking the shots on um and actually watching the game yesterday I feel like there was a point last season where we kind of collectively as a fan base or certainly I reached a point where I was like Bakai Saka's best position is on the right and Mm. that was reaffirmed earlier this season and I think I'm pretty close to saying that about Emil Smith-Rowe in the left-hand side Mm -hmm. I think that um he plays it exceptionally well I think the fullback that plays behind him benefits from his presence there enormously. Mm. I don't think it diminishes his goal threat, and we're seeing that bore now. Um, 
you know, I know he's got the number 10 on his back. Maybe, although I think he's fairly kind of relaxed about where he plays based on interviews he's given. I, I do think that left-hand side, it really, really suits him. Um, I think so too, yeah. Because he can go either way, can't he? He can, yeah, exactly. he can go outside. And he spends a lot of his time inside, which is quite Perezian. Uh, and the way yeah. that he pops up in the box and the, the central positions that he pops up in um, is very like Robert Perez because that's that's how he played. But like Perez as well, when he wants to, he can go outside. Um, and we've seen him do that. So look, it's it's fantastic to see. And hopefully, you know, it's something he can keep up. And, um, you know, we need we need players in key positions to mm-hmm. make decisive contributions. And his was absolutely decisive yesterday on a day where, you know, other players didn't quite um, reach the heights that we thought they might, like the, Ob- uh, the Aubameyang thing we, we already spoke about, uh, the Odegaard goal, which probably should have been a goal. That's 2-0. I think that makes everything much more safe. But at 1-0, it's a, it's a weird scoreline. We know that one moment, one um, mistake, one piece of quality from the opposition can change what's a, a good result into a poor result. Um, so I'm curious mm. uh, as to as to your thoughts on those final stages of the game, because I feel like this is an ongoing issue with this team where, where maybe there isn't quite the ability or the know-how or the savvy, whatever it might be, to, to sort of change the momentum that we cede to the opposition by the fact that we sit off. We sit off a bit deep. We protect the lead. I think protecting a two-goal lead or a three-goal lead, I get it. Like, what's the point in opening yourself up? So sit there, let them have the ball. It's much easier to do. But a one-goal lead, I think you need to be smarter in, in, in how you manage the game. And being on the ball more, winning the ball back, controlling the ball, controlling possession... I think this is an area that that we're maybe just struggling a little bit in. And if you're facing a better team in those circumstances, you are probably going to have more problems than Watford posed us yesterday. And when you look at what's to come uh, in the Premier League, we've got Liverpool after the interlull, then it's Newcastle, but then... Uh, two away games, Manchester United yeah. and Everton. I think this is an issue that that Mikel Arteta has got to think about, um, because if you allow the opposition that much of the ball, they're going to hurt you when they're good. Watford aren't good, um, but the the teams that we've got coming up, um, even if some of them are struggling a little bit, they're better than that. So it, it's a bit of a problem. It is, yeah, and uh, it might seem odd to talk about him on a day where you know we're all saying Ainsley Maitland-Niles was man of the match. I, I personally think that is an area in which we miss a midfield player like Granite Xhaka, someone who can kind of stroke the ball around a bit, control possession. Um, I think we miss that. I also think there's a maturity aspect to it. Um, it was interesting. I also think there might be a physical component. I mean, we work very hard in the early stages of games. And sometimes I feel, especially when you take a couple of players out of the side, so, you know, without Partey, without Shaka, without a couple more, mm. um, that the, the Arteta's guys that he trusts are kind of already on the pitch. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, for example, I was watching the game and thinking... Aubameyang's having a bit of a stinker here. It would be lovely if we could swap him out. 
But um, when you start with Aubameyang and Lacazette, and you know Lacazette's probably coming off after about an hour, mm. you're limited in terms of what you then have on the bench. Um, you know, Eddie Nketiah, I think, was on the bench yesterday. Um, Nicola Pepe as well, Martinelli. But mm. I just don't think Arteta trusts them to the same degree, rightly or wrongly. And I think it makes it more difficult to kind of freshen it up. Um, yeah, I found myself sort of hoping, you know, Elneny was the guy who came on and I completely understood that to kind of steady the shit. But I found myself thinking, and we saw when Martinelli actually did come on, um, how effective he was in sort of A, offering a threat on the break and B, just basically being able to run away from defenders and help us keep the ball. Yeah. Um, I wondered if that might have come earlier, but I'm not sure that the degree of trust is there in some of the other options. And I, and to be honest, I have a degree of sympathy with that. Yeah, no, well. no, I get it. I, I I do see that. And if you're looking for ball security, I suppose Elneny is the obvious choice, even though it was about, what, five minutes from the end when he yeah. came on. Um, you know, you to have a kind of midfield player maybe who can come on and be a bit more... I mean, this is where I think that there is a gap in the squad, where I think there's there's room for a midfield player who's perhaps a bit more aggressive, a bit more front-footed, somebody who can win the ball back and, and give you that uh, possession and security as well, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. So to have that as another option in the squad would be very useful. Um, I think midfield is still a bit of a, a weird one, obviously, without party, and we're looking at January as as a, a difficulty anyway. Um, but, but it's maybe a collective thing as well. I know we've spoken about maturity. We've spoken about this team developing and maybe going through certain games like this will will make them confident that they can deal with these kind of scenarios but if we're going to talk about the things that are positive about the team and there's been a lot that's positive about the team and the results and the performances and the commitment and all of those things which I think we can all identify with and we all enjoy you know we have to acknowledge as well that maybe there are things that aren't quite um, where they should be as well and I just worry about I worry about our ability to to just change the momentum of a game when it goes the other way. Watford aren't really a very good team. They're not a great possession team. They don't offer much in uh, attack. They've got a couple of decent midfield players, but you know they were able to uh, have far more of the ball than I th- I felt comfortable with at one nil, two nil, three nil. Fine, have as much as you want. So I just think it's one of those things that Arteta will look at. Um, over the the international break and think, well, is there anything we can do? Are there things we can do on the training ground that might uh, offset some of that? Um, yeah, and, and I I kind of in my head feel like Martin Odegaard might hold the key to that. Um, mm. I think being without Partey, Shaka, and Odegaard in this game inevitably is from the start anyway mm. is inevitably going to affect the degree of mid control you're at, midfield control you're able to exert I mean that's yeah. probably our best three or people will argue that it's probably Mikel Arteta's first choice you know three midfield players there mm. um, so yeah it's worth acknowledging that we were completely without that albeit in Odegaard's case by choice mm. I, I also think that on the positive side um, I think there is a sense in which the team, my impression watching, were kind of not happy for Watford to control the ball as much as they did in that period, but the, the back four and goalkeeper were 
pretty content for them to kind of sling stuff into the box. And I think that confidence is something that's built by the defensive record we've put yeah. together, you know, over yeah, these yeah, last yeah. few games. Yeah, I agree. I, I, thought, I thought the the defenders were good. I mean, Ramsdale had a little bit of a moment, but beyond that... <laughs> yeah, just a bit, yeah. Just a little bit of a moment. Um, but, uh, you know, the central defensive partnership is developing very nicely. Um, Tavares is good. He's a good player. He looks a good player. And I think you're right to point out that in some ways he is uh, aided well by Smith-Rowe on that left-hand side. You know, there's never... How many times have we watched Arsenal and seen Kieran Tierney on that left-hand side with nowhere to go and nobody to Mm. go there with? And I don't think Tavares has had to deal with that because he's had Smith-Rowe outside him. And Tommy Asu yesterday was absolutely brilliant. Defensively, Mm. unbelievably solid. Won everything in the air. Won his tackles. Won his duels. They didn't run past him at all. It's, you know, it's very, very promising. And I think maybe there's a confidence maybe you're right to say there is a confidence in our ability to defend which you could derive from the way that we played like it, there isn't that insecurity about defending which means that okay we're desperate to get the ball back we need to get Watford out of here it's kind of like well let them have it what are they going to do anyway yeah and uh, you know any successful season will always have a good few of these narrow one nil victories in it I was reflecting on the Invincible season because I watched a, a preview of the Arsene Wenger documentary mm. um, and you know we forget in the sort of mists of time how many and how tight some of those wins are and how you do have to rely on your back line I thought Tomiassi was very good as well especially because I am right in saying he was on a booking uh, I think for quite a long period in the game is that right Tommy Asu yeah when did he get booked was it first half yeah chasing somebody back and I I slightly I slightly worried about him at that point and thought you know this is going to be a a significant test for him and he just managed it impeccably I also think same with Sambi in fairness he got a fairly early booking yeah yeah. And, and I think Watford do have threat on the break I mean Josh King tore Everton apart he's a bit of a handful he's very very quick um, Ismail Assar I'm just laughing I'm remembering the um, the the sort of double team moment mm. um, when King uh, was there with Ben White and Gabrielle and I think Gabrielle you know one of those where it looks like an accidental collision but you just put yourself in the way as a central defender and he just sort of fell on the ground and I enjoyed that because it's just the kind of stealth fuckery that you want from your central yeah. defenders. And I thought Gabrielle sent out a real message early on. There was one ball into the channel with King where he just went in and kind of monstered him and then another one with Saar mm. who has really hurt us in the past when he was playing in France, played very well against us uh, and he, he just went shoulder to shoulder with him and showed him who was boss. I thought Tavares dealt with Saar brilliantly, one of the most athletic players in the Premier League, Saar really, in terms of speed, height, power, dribbling ability as well. And I thought Tavares did superbly in that respect. Um, yeah, I had a huge heart in mouth moment when I, I've only just seen the TV coverage of Aaron Ramsdale coming charging out of goal. And it's actually, <laughs> he, it looks even worse on that because uh, he just, I think they're on a close up of Ben White and then he just appears in the frame. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, what yeah, the yeah. hell's going on? Yeah. Um, but I, it's interesting. I was thinking about it afterwards and I was like, well, that's a mistake Bern Leno probably wouldn't make. And I think that speaks to the good points about Leno in terms of his um, 
you know, he, he's more conservative in some of his judgments. But Ramsdale is someone, for better and worse, who makes a lot of positive choices within games and sooner or later I guess mm. some of those are going to get wrong and that was a, a, a significant misjudgment yeah he got that one wrong and I do wonder if it's a case of um, you know he wanted to be involved or, or what have you I think that's one where the goalkeeping coach can sit down and say look uh, make a different decision next time let Ben mm. White deal with that uh, because yeah it could could really have been costly but I think it would need to be a pretty special finish to be fair yeah. I think but Canu yes, would have scored it, it. Canu would have scored it. He would have been up there in the stands, uh, raging that that he's, uh, yeah. he's earned the 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 bit of luck or whatever you want to call it. To be honest, Ramsdale. You yes, know, over the and last I thought he did weeks. the fundamentals well yeah. in the game. Um, but yes, I mean, we got away with one there for sure. Right. Well, look. I mean, anything else on the game itself? Just you know, twenty points from. Think. From our last eight games, we're in fifth place in the Premier League. It's a lot, lot better than it was. Plenty still yeah. to do. I, you know, we can be really positive and pleased with what we've done in the last couple of months since those opening three games of the season. Um, I, yeah, I think as well, you know, we've spoken about the penalty, the offside goal that might have been a goal. I think we came up against a goalkeeper in pretty good form as yeah, well. yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, he makes a very good save from Aubameyang, even if it's not the best penalty. And his save from Gabriel yeah. uh, was excellent as well. Um, you know, we had an inspired goalkeeper on our side last week and we came up against one, I think. Uh, yeah, that's weekend, fair. So. That's fair. It was a very I, good save from Gabriel, wasn't it? Yeah. So, I, I, oh, I've just dropped something. But I think, um, I think while there are lessons to be learned, I, I do think that on another day, Arsenal probably win this by two or three mm. goals. I think we got more right uh, than wrong. And I, I just have to take my hat off, really, to the team and the manager for um, really churning out the points in this period. You know, I think... what What is it in the league? How many... Because I remember us having a conversation, I think it was after... Um, Man City and saying, mm. you know, what do they need mm. from this next? I think it was to this point. It was, is it was it eight games or something like that? Yeah, league. And I think we said, oh, 18, they need at least eighteen. Yeah. I think is what we said. There, yeah, there. I, think, I, I might have. I think I might have said, oh, at least uh, fifteen as a bare minimum. Mm. And, and what have we got? We've got 20. something like twenty, which is very decent. It's very decent. Mm -hmm. uh, might have been more. You know, I think really we should have probably beaten Crystal Palace if we'd played to our potential, but tough games on the horizon too. I mean, we couldn't be going uh, into a slightly more daunting one. I don't think there are many harder away fixtures than Anfield um, mm. and Everton and, and uh, Manchester United not far away too. So I think it, it was really important that we that we got a decent return from this run of games and yeah, we have done that. And we have done that. So it's it's something to build on uh, and something we can be positive about. Like I said at the start, we can go into this international break and we can look at the things that we've done well and say, okay, let's keep doing that and look at the things where we need to improve and do that with the comfort of this 20-point whatever you want to call it. What is it? A safety net? It's not a safety net, but you know, we've, we've got those points on the board and I, I feel like it's easier to try and find solutions when you're not super focused on a load of other things that are going wrong. You know, uh, we still need to be a bit more creative. We still need to score more goals. We need to be a bit more, um, 
in control in key periods of games, but hopefully those things will come. And also Liverpool lost. So happy and They did. Day. I mean, remarkably, we can uh, go above them, I think, if we win at Anfield. It's fucking crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, look, we're sat in fifth for the international break above Manchester United, which feels good, comfortably above Tottenham as well. Um, but it's still at that stage of the season where everything's very tight, yeah. you know, and uh, I think there's going to be a bit of volatility about that league position. But yeah. I certainly feel a hell of a lot better about things than I did a couple of months ago. Do you think Antonio Conte was the saddest man in the world after Man, man United got beaten in the derby? Do you think he just <laughs> went, oh, fuck, what the... Oh. Only I just waited. Yeah, I mean, he only took an eighteen-month contract, right? So I think I wonder if in the back of his mind, he's like, I mean, maybe something good's going to come up. Is it, it like when you buy a washing crazy. machine? You know, you get this like two-week grace period where you can just say, "Nah." So if you it return back. it within yeah, twenty-eight yeah. days, yeah. if you return your Tottenham contract within twenty-eight <laughs> days, um, I don't know. I mean, oh, by the way, uh, I, you know, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, we uh, gave him man the match. I forgot to say in the build-up to the penalty. What an ingenious pass he played off the outside of his right boot. Uh, do you remember that one? The yeah. shot he had that just flew into the air, um, but dropped in the right place. I guess when you're having a good day, things like that. Things go your way. All right. Well, look, we've got plenty more to discuss in part two. Uh, we will do that. We'll take a break and we'll come back with your questions and more right after this. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog, and also on the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an ArsBlog member on Patreon. I'm going to go first, James, if you don't mind. We've got a load of questions here about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. So I'm going to do um, a couple of them, but we'll f- uh, fly through them. Uh, True Story, who's at True Story underscore no- number four uh, on Twitter, says, uh, Gents, Aubameyang, just the stinky day at the office or is this lack of finishing decision making under pressure a true indicator uh, indicator of decline harsh i know and if you're concerned what is the solution to more goals this season i assume uh, he means for obamian well i i have to be honest and say i think this is a, just a bad day at the office i do i think there's a broader underlying decline 
almost certainly it would be weird if there wasn't he's getting older and aspects of his game will suffer but I think this was an afternoon where things just didn't go right for him Mm. I think that uh, in recent weeks his improved work rate and commitment as Arteta's pointed out publicly has been a big part in our upturn he has been scoring Goals at a substantially better rate than last season mm. too. Um, personally, I am prepared to sort of write this one off as just a day where things didn't go right for him. And they sort of piled up on top of each other, you know, to what extent was him reaching out to stab home that goal when he was in offside position related to the fact he'd already missed that penalty. Um, I suspect there is a relationship there. So... I guess broadly, yes, Aubameyang is in decline because he's mortal. Um, <laughs> but I still think he's got a big part to play between now and the end of the season, and I think he'll have many better days than this. What about you? Yeah, I think it was, I think mostly it was just a bad day at the office. Mostly. Yeah. You know, he just had a really, really, really bad game. I liked um, this question. Where was it? Uh, why can't I ever find anything James Um, god damn it oh yeah Pulse fan who's at Pulse underscore fan says has Aubameyang created a new phenomena the anti-hat trick and what would be considered the perfect (laughs) anti-hat trick I guess you know missing a penalty clearing one off the line a la Nicholas Bentner uh, that time and you know something else heading one at least over. he didn't nod one into his own net like he did against Burnley last season um, yeah but yeah not his day uh, but I think I think he's been significantly better this season than last mm. um, and I think a lot of that's due to what's going on around him but I also think he looks re-energised and committed I still think, I think we all kind of, as a fan base, acknowledge that striker is going to be a focus for Arsenal in the forthcoming transfer windows. Um, it has to be, right, for the mm. the evolution of this team. But this was just uh, really one of those days for Oba. <laughs> it really was. Um, let me ask you this, because a lot of people are talking about the penalty miss. Yeah. And there's a stat... He's missed four of thirteen in the in the Premier League. Four of the thirteen penalties uh, that he has taken for Arsenal. So, uh, Joe, who's at Red and White Eleven, says it seems Aubameyang needs to come off penalties for the foreseeable future. Lacazette is the clear choice to take them, but he's not a guaranteed starter and set to leave. Who do we have in the team who could do it in the long term? Uh, is this a trait to be considered in a new signing? And there was also one on um, the Discord as well. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Under Freddy said, should we not trust the players to decide their own penalty takers? None of the other players are even discussing taking it over Aubameyang. So it must uh, must not be an issue to them and they see him as the best one. I mean, yeah, Arteta said that they're his if he he wants them, essentially. Um, Yeah. And you'd imagine he will he will want to keep taking them because they add to his goal tally. Um, I, I'm a bit surprised that Lacazette hasn't really got a look in on either of the last two, but he has been the man fouled 
in each of the That's last two true. Seasons. And actually, I had a uh, correspondence from somebody after the last one, which basically said, yes, uh, Lacazette was offered the penalty. That's right, yeah. But didn't take it. And I wonder yesterday, uh, let me see here. It was, oh, I can't remember. Oh, yeah, it was Jamie Fulker, who's at JF Doodles on Twitter, who who uh, told me that about the, the, the previous penalty. I wonder what would be the school of thought if, having been clotheslined by Danny Rose, a slightly woozy, woozy Lacazette takes a penalty. Yeah, exactly. People will be saying, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. So sure. I can understand. And wants yeah. to get back on the horse as well. Do you know what I mean? He probably wanted to put that miss out of his mind. Um, yeah, he, he's not a brilliant penalty taker in the fashion of, say, Robin Van Persie, who I thought was exceptional. Mm. Um so have we got another one of those in the squad? I, I don't know. I mean, Lacazette and Pepe have very good penalty records. Pepe's but, good. Yeah, they're not always guaranteed to be on the field for yeah. different reasons. We had Ainsley Maitland-Niles, of course, yeah. uh, yesterday, who's looked pretty decent when called upon in shootouts. I, I said this in my post-match video, but if I was Bukayo Saka or Mel Smith-Rowe, I'd be practising my penalties pretty hard because I do think, you know, whether Aubameyang keeps it until he leaves or whatever, that that spot is going to be up for grabs yeah. in the next few seasons. And that could be another five goals on your tally. It's very, very worthwhile for a player. Um, I don't doubt they've got the kind of technical ability. So... Well, they're taking uh, yeah. they're taking the the set pieces, pretty much all of them, aren't they? And very well. I thought, you know, again, we looked to threat corners from and the free corners. Kicks. Yeah. So, so uh, if I were them, I'd be yeah, that's a good working point. on my technique and yeah. trying to throw my hat into the ring because uh, um, we're going to need somebody sooner or later. Yeah, that is very true. That is very true. Um, cool. Let's have another question. What have I got here? Uh, okay. So, Matthias Belmar, is it too early to have the Tavares Tierney conversation? It may be a case of recency bias, but KT hasn't had a great start this season and Tavares has been stellar. We know Tierney well. His best is so good. But Tavares is practically undroppable right now. Please discuss. Please discuss. We had another question like this um, from Medfly70 uh, who said, we like to say competition is healthy. Do we really think Tavares should keep a spot over KT? This is a different situation from the goalkeepers. Tavares was brought in uh, as as backup, whereas uh, Aaron Ramsdale was brought in to be the future number one. Mm. Uh, it's just one of those situations where a player has come in, done really well, doesn't deserve to lose his place in the team, didn't lose his place in the team yesterday, perhaps because of a fitness thing more than anything else. But I think Tierney will get his place back for the Liverpool game, assuming that nothing happens to him. Um... Yeah, we'll on see international how duty, you know, with Scotland, because it wasn't long ago we were talking about Kieran Tierney being one of those first name on the team sheet players for Arsenal. Uh, I fully accept, and I think everyone can see that he hasn't had the best season so far. He hasn't been anywhere near his best. Maybe there are some underlying reasons for that that we're not aware of. Um, but I, I feel like he is the senior man it'd be like I guess the equivalent of of Martinelli coming in and scoring a few goals 
when Aubameyang was out, I still get the sense that Aubameyang would get the nod if he was fit. Do you know what I mean? Because of that seniority, mm. because of that. I'm not saying that's the right thing or the wrong thing. I'm just saying that's what would happen. And I I feel that's where we are with, with Tierney and, and Tavares. Um, but look, there's loads to like about him. He's so impressive physically. Uh, he gets up and down. He can come inside, which I... I don't think we see a great deal of from from Tierney. Tierney's very much a push and run down the outside kind of fullback, whereas Tavares comes in and drives in field. Drives in field. Yeah. He's a bit more comfortable on his right foot. Um, so I just feel like I feel like Tierney would be in Arteta's first eleven and will be when he's fit again. But it's great that we have someone like Tavares who can fill in, who can deputize, uh, who can push Tierney as well. I think it's a healthy situation. I don't think it's an unhealthy situation at all. There will come a point maybe where where it can get a little bit like that, where you've got two players of similar quality, but I don't know that we've seen enough yet from Tavares to say that he is um, he's quite there yet. It's it's a very, very encouraging start to his Arsenal career, but it's only a few games, and we've seen Tierney for a couple of years now be one of our better players, our most consistent players, and I think that stands for something. Yeah, and we're hoping to get to a place where we have more fixtures, right? Where we have midweek games, mm. and we require that degree of rotation, and it's looking like these two could share that. But mm. I, I think Tierney will come back in for Liverpool. I think that the international break sort of arrives at the right time in that respect. You mm. know, we were kind of in the midst of a series of games. Tavares did brilliantly in them, but international break is always a bit of a reset point. Uh, and I think Tierney will come back into the side. I think. Uh, you want a meritocracy, but there is always a hierarchy as well yeah. within squads. And Tierney's one of Arteta's guys. You know, he's one of his absolute lieutenants. And I think I think he'll pick him. Uh, and I hope we see him... Respond. Who knows, you know? Yeah, motivated, pushed, and, and produce uh, something like his best. That's how you want competition to work for you. And in fairness, that's how competition has worked in other areas of the squad. Um, you know, if you think of how Lacazette's come in and the impact he's made and Bern Leno keeping Aaron Ramsdale on his toes. And, I, you know, I, I do think that that can be valuable. So I, I, I think Tavares has done brilliantly. I think he's exceeded all expectations. Mm. But I still think Tierney will get the nod. And I think in Arteta's position, I would probably do the same thing. Speaking of Tavares, uh, yeah. Tom M... M, who's at Tom underscore Muraket or Morissette, says, How good was Nuno Tavares's knee slide for the Smith Row goal? Can't remember the last time I've seen the technique executed so well. It was like a, a slide and a turn, and oh, it was top class, top class sliding. Yeah, he's quite the acrobat. There was a, the moment in the second half where he got brought down in the edge of the box and basically <laughs> performed a full 360 flip um, in the air. I was a little bit worried about him. But yeah, listen, knee slides. I think all Arsenal fans are slightly traumatised by knee slides ever since Patrick Vieira um, injuring himself. But it was an impressive one. And actually, there was a lovely celebration after the first goal between Smith Rowe and Saka that we'll never see yeah. the light of day where they kind of... Uh, what were they doing? Reclining, I guess, on the Emirates turf. Um, it was a nice shot. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Sadly, 
will fade into obscurity. It's one of those where when, when the goal is disallowed, it's like, oh, shit. Looks, I, I actually was now. very much that guy <laughs> in the stadium because I'm sat on the aisle and the ball hit the net from Saka and I ran down the aisle and, you know, saw some saw my cousins and was like high-fiving, slaps on the back. And I turned around, it'd been disallowed and I was just looked like this <laughs> lunatic um, <laughs> celebrating alone. But, you know... It, it happens. It happens to the best of us. If it can happen to Smith Rowe and Saka, it can happen to me. But sure no, I, I've really enjoyed watching Tavares. How can you not? I mean, he plays with such uh, ebullience and yeah, he's great fun. He's just a really fun footballer to watch. Yeah, he's been a very good addition to the squad. So, um, you know, it, it's pleasing as part of this this work that we did during the summer uh, and all the rest of it, that, that the guys who are coming in are really making a, a difference to the way the team plays and the way that we feel about the team and, most importantly, the results that we're achieving. So, given that, let me, let me ask you this because we've had a few questions about the interview uh, Josh Kroenke did uh, with oh, yeah, Sky. Yeah. So, on the Discord... Uh, Aaron Sidwell says, is it too early to look at the KSE ownership in a different light? KSE through Josh have shown a willingness to communicate more since 2018 and now a more sensible long-term strategy with Arsenal at the top of the net spend in Europe when it comes to squad investment this season, as well as spending some fucking money. They also seem to have placed people in key positions at the club who have a deep and meaningful relationship with the team and fans prior to their arrival. In short, they've shown that through, uh, though mistakes have been made they're learning from them what more should a club expect from the ownership and there was another one here from twitter uh, from ratan postwala who's at ratan postwala he says this might be an unpopular opinion but i was fairly pleased with josh Cronkey's recent interview with sky not sure if he's genuinely evolving or if this is yet another facet of the club's very apparent p or masterclass this season or both your thoughts please well I always have to tread carefully with this because it's such an emotive sus- sus- uh, subject. I feel like I'm going to get people angry, whatever I say. But I, well, for number one, Josh Cronkey is a good talker. Um, mm. You know, and he always has been. Uh, and I think that the club maybe should have made more use of that to be honest. Uh, I think he might have been able to put out some fires for them. But I also think fans are smart enough to recognise that actions and words are distinct. And there have been times in the past where he said things very eloquently and charmingly uh, and seemingly sensibly, but they haven't always been matched by uh, actions, you know, and Mm. results. But I do... I, I am a, of a more sympathetic disposition towards the ownership than many because I think that their case is essentially we've only owned the club since 2018. Now, a lot of people will take issue with that because Stan Kroenke has been majority shareholder for a long time. And I don't doubt that there are definitely mistakes that were made in that period. But I do think that since 2018, there's been a more positive degree of involvement and direction. I still think that the Super League was such a transgression that I don't think this owner is ever really going to win fans back. Like, I think that was such a clear 
uh, it flew in the face of what so many supporters, including myself, value about this club and English football mm. that I just don't know how feasible it is to kind of turn that tide of opinion. Mm. Um, but am I encouraged by what I'm seeing now? Cautiously, yes. Cautiously, yes. Because there has been investment. And for the first time in a while, the investment feels like considered investment, mm. sensible investment, investment that has real strategy underpinning it. Um, I, 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 who knows where that leads and who... Uh, but I think as well, the reason that the reason that I am more relaxed about the ownership than some is partly because I look around at the options of who might own Arsenal. And there aren't a great many alternatives that enthuse me. I have to be honest about that. Like, I, I don't envy a, a lot of what other clubs have because um, it it comes with its own complications. Um, so, yeah. I, mm. I, but, it, it, you know, equally, I know that for some people everything KSC represents is kind of anathema mm. to, to what they like about Arsenal. So it's a very complicated one. In short, do I think it's good that Josh Kroenke is, is addressing issues publicly, speaking publicly about his involvement in the club? Yes, I think we've asked for that. We can't then um, throw it back in their face when it actually happens. Do I think it's good that he seems to be a bit more involved day to day? Certainly more involved than his father was. I think almost at any point uh, in the in their sort of majority ownership of the club. Yes, I think that is probably a good thing. So baby steps, but like mm. I say, so much was damaged. I mean, I was at the Cronky out protests mm. after the Super League, protesting. You know, I, I I couldn't have been more vehemently opposed, and I do think that it was such a traumatic thing for an already difficult relationship between owner and mm. club that that these are baby steps towards some kind of reconciliation but, mm. but only that what, what do you think I watched the 25 minutes there's a 25 minute interview with Jeff Shreves on Sky yeah. uh, and if people want to watch it um, there's a link in the show notes you can click through to Sky Sports and, and watch it Um I think you're right to say that if we had issues with silence then and a lack of communication and all of those things, it is a positive thing that Josh, who is clearly now the the face of KSE, he is, when I say Arsenal is his club, I obviously don't mean it's his club because our club, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? I'm just saying that he is the KSE guy in charge. He's, you know, Certainly. He's yeah. running the show, if you know what I mean, from an ownership perspective, right? Mm. So if he's present and if he's visible and if he's involved, all of the things that we suspected Stan wasn't, I mean, he appears to be interested, which we definitely never got the sense from Stan that, that he was, you know what I mean? Mm. Mm. Those are positive things. And I, I'm not going to take issue with... Uh, the ownership addressing a key aspect of their ownership that we had problems with, right? Mm. So that's good. Um, the interview itself, uh, he is a good talker. He's a good uh, communicator. Um, I think 
the questions that were put to him were good as well. Um, there wasn't any uh, sugarcoating some of the issues where um, Jeff Shreves talked about the, the Super League being the nadir of the relationship um, and basically pushed Josh Kroenke into saying, look, I can't argue with that because it, it was. I still feel like certain aspects of it are are a bit hard to take. Like he said at one point, something along the lines of, I only really consider from 2018 onwards our ownership. And that's mm. just bullshit. You know, that's nonsense. KSE have been in basically control of the club for a lot longer than that. They have been the drivers of, um, you know, they've owned most of the shares. They didn't own 100% of the shares, but they own most of the shares. Usmanov owned some, but couldn't do anything. So KSE could do what they wanted. It wasn't like there was somebody else there who was blocking anything that they wanted to do. I realize that there are aspects of not being 100% owners, which um, make a difference when you do own something completely. It does change things. But the idea that they they could only really be considered um, owners since 2018 is just wrong. You know, I, do, I don't buy into that. And I don't, I don't necessarily appreciate the, the suggestion that that we should just ignore everything that came before them, that they get a pass for that. You know what I, I mean? I agree with you about yeah. that. And I, 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 can I just say on that point, mm. because I think it's interesting, the way it was put to me by someone who'd worked for KSE was that there was a reluctance, um, there was a reluctance on their part to invest, shall we say, while Alisher Usmanov owned such a large uh, proportion of the company and that the antipathy that existed between those groups in some ways inhibited sure. the degree of investment, yeah. which which is not a good thing. Like, that shouldn't have been the case. But from what I gather, that was the case. Yeah, I, I, I get that to an extent. But I also feel like it's easy to look back and say that that's why they didn't do certain things at certain times. Because, you know, in reality, they could have done whatever they wanted anyway. That's... That's it. Yeah, and he's course. talked about he talks about investment in the training ground. He talks about uh, you know various things that they've done. And look, there are positives to what's gone on this summer. They did um, sanction or green light the investment in the squad, and we're we've been talking for weeks now about how good that has been. So you know we're not. I'm not trying to sort of downplay uh, the positives. I mean the Super League thing. I'm sorry, but you cannot tell me that this was something that just came up at the last minute and Arsenal had to make a decision about whether to be involved or not. Mm. You know, this has been brewing behind the scenes for a long, long time. And this idea that, oh, we we had to think about, well, what's better, Arsenal in a Super League or Ars a Super League without Arsenal, whatever it was. Nah, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying it. Um, the The protests... I think I don't think KSE were alone in underestimating the opposition to it. They weren't the yeah. only Arsenal fans weren't the only group of fans. Uh but I don't believe that this was something that just happened, you know, one evening it was like, well, either you're in or you're out. Give us a decision right now or that's the end of it. I don't I don't buy into that. And I also just wonder if some of what's going on at the club from a strategic point of view, how much does that have to do with KSE? I mean, mm -hmm. obviously they have to, 
they sign off on everything. They're the owners. If you want to spend money, they've got to give you the money to spend. If you want to do this, they've got to give you the approval to, to do it, you know? But it really feels to me like this is a strategy that, that hasn't necessarily come from, from board level as much as it's come from, let's say, the manager, which has then been implemented by... Like, do you think this idea of of buying young players and putting them in place is uh, a KSE thing or a strategy that perhaps has been cooked up between the manager, maybe Edu, you know, uh, to rebuild, to actually say, look, we're, we're in a position where the only option we have is to, is to do a proper rebuild. And this is how you do a proper rebuild. Um, I'm not sure I buy into their role in this beyond the uh, beyond the role of of facilitators of of a plan rather than the the um the being the the what you call it uh the originators of the plan instigators yeah, yeah. uh well i've i've said many times i don't believe it's a kind of Mikel Arteta um strategy i think i think the decision was taken more broadly than that based on a lot of different factors. I basically think managers do prefer experienced players. And, you know, he's shown us a year before when he pushed so hard for the signing of Willian. Maybe lessons were learnt a little bit from that, but I think that this was a club decision. Do I think it came from Josh Kroenke's brain? Probably not. Um, almost certainly not. Although uh, people who follow their franchises in America mm. tell me that this idea of... A young coach with uh, young players sprinkled with some big stars is not unfamiliar in other KSC teams, mm. particularly. He did basketball. reference that. I yeah. don't know. He did I, reference I, I that. I honestly yeah. don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, unfortunately, but yeah, I, I think the, the the problem with KSC has always been. I've always said I think KSC are good owners if they have the right people running the club. <laughs> That's my basic position, is that they have significant financial resource. They don't get overly involved. They don't. Um, they're not a destabilizing influence, but they are dependent upon the people they put in position to run the club. And there was a period in time when that was Arsene Wenger and Ivan Gazidis and they trusted mm. them implicitly, maybe trusted them too much or too long. Then we had this huge turnover in executives where clearly decisions were made that were wrong about people who were appointed. Um, now, you know, we've got this Edu and Arteta axis and at the moment their stock is good. Uh, six months ago, 12 months ago, it wasn't. Mm. So... Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that they, they it's about if they get it right. Like, yeah. I, I don't want an owner who says this is the transfer strategy. You know, I don't think any of us fans really want a, a businessman, someone who's not really a football person to be making those calls, making those decisions. Mm. The question is, do they get the organisation of the club, you know, the appointees correct yeah i mean th this is something that andrew allen was saying to me this morning and i'm just wondering what what you think of this in that a lot of a lot of the people we've put in place 
Um, how do you say this properly? I mean, there have been existing relationships. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So Arteta, former player, former captain, earmarked for quite a while as a coach. Edu has got uh, a track record and a history with the club. Tim Lewis has come in, but he was basically Cronky's lawyer. I know Richard mm-hmm. Garlick has come in, and he's maybe a bit of an external appointment. And um, that that addition of football knowledge and football expertise to that executive committee is is a good one, I think. But do you worry maybe that the the processes aren't necessarily there? I mean, maybe we haven't had an example of it yet, but a, a classic one is. When Gazidis left and KSE, rather than go through a procedure of, well, who is the best person that we can find for the job, simply said, well, you're there, Raul, you do it. Mm, Maybe mm. based on the recommendation of Gazidis, where perhaps best practices when it comes to filling key positions I know football is a bit of a weird industry in that way, that there is an element of, well, right place, right time for a lot of people. But yeah, Yeah. who you know. But maybe, maybe that's still an element of what we do and how we do it that could be improved. I I think that's almost certainly the case. And, you know, if, if they have stumbled upon a structure that seems to be productive and working well now, they have done so as much by accident as design. You know, I don't think it was ever the grand plan um, to not have Raul there to, you know, I, you know, I think it's, things have fallen out in this way. And fortunately, those executives have forged a, a coherent relationship that at the moment we think looks all right. Mm. Um, but I don't think you can say it's by design. Mm. And that's, that's sport and that's life. <clears throat> that's business more generally. I don't think Mikel Arteta ever planned for Emil Smith Rowe to step into the team last Christmas and become one of our most important players. Sometimes you land upon something. Mm. Um, and maybe KSE have done that to an extent. Although a lot of people would still dispute that. I know, you know, it's not like there's uniformity of opinion about Arteta and Edu. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that my encouragement is is just that it is like i say some positive signs but we are talking about uh, being only a few months on from as jeff shrews put it the nadir of the relationship mm. between the club and the, between the fans and the owners so probably the only way was up thankfully we are taking some baby steps in that direction but there's still a long way to go. And I I personally don't know if um I don't know if fans will ever take these owners to their hearts. I don't see that happening. No. I really don't. I don't think so. There's too much uh, too much water under the bridge from way before twenty eighteen as well, you know? Yeah, although everything they say says they're gonna be here forever. And, well, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, so, you know, maybe uh in the long term 20, you know, whatever it is, the the last 10 years will feel like a blink of an eye. I don't know. But... um, Well, I mean, the best thing that they can do is is make themselves kind of irrelevant by ensuring that, you know, this is a football club where the focus is on a team that's good and successful and capable, which is what they say they want 
It's what they've said all along. They want to compete for the biggest trophies. They keep saying these things and they don't deliver. And that's why there's distrust. Now, I, yeah. I'm, look, I, I'm, I know it's not as simple as saying, well, I want to do this. Therefore, we're going to do this and it'll, it'll happen. But the positive, as I said, is that there is more involvement and greater awareness. And, and I think maybe there's a... Is something interesting, whether it turns out to be a good thing or a bad thing or successful or not. But there's a team of uh, executives at the club, the manager, the technical director, the head of the academy, the chief executive, Richard Garlick, Josh Kroenke, all in and around the same kind of age. So if there's a way of making that team work together because, you know, they're, they're, they have age in common, life experiences, all of those things, maybe that is a positive thing. But yeah, it comes down it to is. what we do and, and how we do it. And like, if, we, if we're successful this season, nobody's going to be talking about Josh Kroenke, really, or KSE. And that's probably the best thing that they can hope for, right? Yeah, that, that, that is what we should want. Um, and uh, it hasn't been the case often enough. And, and, and it's interesting you mentioned that sort of team of managers and executives. I mean, in the previous sort of 24 months before this summer, it, it was a constant kind of political environment and you mm. heard a lot of things about dynamics and relationships and power struggles kind of ever since Arsene Wenger or maybe even before Arsene Wenger left the club. And I, I have to be completely honest and say that's not the impression I have now. I think that there is... I mean, look, Mikel Arteta's buzzword of the week was clearly unity. He must have said it, you know, ten times in his interview with Amy Lawrence. But mm. it, it, I think there is um, a sense in which, maybe in slightly trying circumstances, that group of individuals have sort of rallied round each other and, and yeah. are supporting each other. And that, again, I don't think it was all by design, but mm. it feels uh, like some progress. Mm. I, I think. Um, yeah, I'm I, I'm curious to see what we hear from Josh in the next 12 months. My gut tells me that he will be a player, certainly in the Amazon documentary. I feel like <laughs> I would be surprised if he's not a He didn't sculpt voice. that beard for nothing, you know. Exactly, you know, that's for the TV cameras. And, and yeah, I mean, listen, also, we're all smart. We all know that Josh could have come out and done this after Man City 5, Arsenal nil, but knew, <laughs> the club were probably aware, that the timing was bad. And it's not coincidence. Yes, it's Mikel Arteta's 100th game this week, but it's not coincidence that interviews and access have been provided at a time when things are a little bit rosier because people are more open. Yeah. You know, if, if we'd had this discussion... Uh, previous points in the past 12 months, it would have had a very different tone mm. and understandably so. So, you know, there, there is, of course, a kind of public relations element to this and we're all wise to that, I think, at this point as a fan base. But we can't, we can't ask for involvement and presence and then dismiss it entirely when it arrives, I think. I mm. think, you know, we, we all recognise that too. And... I mean, actually, we've got a, a question which is sort of uh, pertinent to this, but Josh was at the meeting of this uh, kind of external committee that's been formed, and, and Kim Everett, the Arsenal Advisory Board, mm. it's called, and Kim Everett on Twitter said, what's up with the Arsenal Advisory Board, uh, a DNI remit including uh, 
broadening profile of Ask the Women, having no women on it. Mm. Um, and that was quite a striking image, I have to say, of the Arsenal Advisory Board being all male. Yeah, I mean, I saw a few people talk about the um, lack of diversity to the board, uh, this advisory board. So I, I did reach out to the club today to see if we could get an official line on that. And they said, and this is the official line, we are working to ensure that the advisory board does effectively represent our ambitions as a club to drive diversity and inclusion. We have representatives from LGBT, disabled, international and young fans. They were appointed through elections and nominated by their respective supporter groups. So there is, you know, maybe an onus on some of those groups to put forward uh, women for certain roles. Um, I did ask uh, if there might be scope for a dedicated female representative for issues regarding the women's team, um, which, you know, I don't want to like pigeonhole anything there because you don't necessarily have to be a woman or a man to be interested in the women's team or the men's team as we know but um they said they still have some things to work through in that regard so um look it's a good thing that this advisory board is there it meets uh, it can provide feedback directly to the owners um but maybe it's still in its infancy and maybe there are things that um you know, will change over the coming months and years, I'm sure, uh, when it comes to the representation on the board. But yeah, look, it's a striking image. Um, it's a lot of men, no women, and I don't think that's necessarily representative uh, in any way of, of the fan base and the support that Arsenal have. So um, we'll, we'll see what happens in that regard over the coming uh, coming weeks and months. So, yeah, Like they're not unaware yeah. of it. You know, they're aware of of that side of it, so... Yeah, and I am glad that there is a forum within which um, fans and representatives of fans are in direct communication with, you know, the ownership. Uh, I think that's mm. kind of uh, overdue. And, and Josh has done some of the fans forums as well. So at least that dialogue is open. The degree to which it bears any fruit um, yeah. remains to be seen. On a kind of similar-ish note, there was a question on the Discord from The Land who said, using the pandemic as an excuse for sacking all of the scouts was a bad look. And I would agree with that. But was the sacking of all the scouts a good thing? Our recruitment had been ranging from bad to disastrous for several years. And whoever the new guys are, I like what they've done so far. That's very interesting, isn't it? Um it is, yeah. Because I think... I mean, yeah, go on. Well, I, I just think um, when Arsenal dismissed uh, a very well-respected infrastructure, almost in its entirety of scouts, um, at the position the club was in, it was open to ridicule. And, and I do understand completely the reasons for that. But uh, the recruitment that we've done since... Uh, let's say since last summer, so in January and in the most recent summer transfer window, at this point, without going overboard, mm. does look to have been pretty effective. Yeah. Yeah, and the the fact that football was shut down and there was nowhere for scouts to go, I'm not defending the uh, decisions or, or saying it was the right thing to do or maybe, you know, the club needed to um, treat people better and everything else. But mm. based on what we've brought in, the players that we've brought in, um, whoever we've got doing that work now, 
has done a pretty good job so far. Like you say, early days and um, and all the rest. But, you know, it, it's always been, to me anyway, it's always been about trying to understand what the strategy is when it comes to recruitment, how we want to recruit, where we want to recruit. I think one of the interesting things anyway, um, from my perspective, is clearly football ability and your talent plays a huge part in how effective you are as a footballer. But I feel like attention has been paid to the character of the players that we've brought in as well. Beyond their ability as footballers, there's something a little bit extra when it comes to their their mentality, whatever it might be, whether it's a positivity, whether it's a determination, whether it's an unflappability, you know, various aspects of what these players have brought to the team can't be really quantified by stats or anything like that. And it it just feels to me like some attention has been paid to that. There was a question, actually. Let me have a look here. I think it was on the Discord as well. It comes that, from, yeah, it on. comes from Charlie Porter 8. It's slightly aligned with this. He says, not sure if this has been asked before, but what is it with Arteta and humility? Every player he likes, he says about uh, they're humble, etc., etc. Do you think this has informed the transfer business, i.e. getting rid of a difficult, in inverted commas, Ganduzi, not getting our, etc., etc.? Interesting. I mean, there was a quote from his interview he did with Amy on the official site. I think it was in the context of talking about spending time with his family and how protective Mm. of that he is. Um, And it was almost a throwaway line, and I may be inferring too much from it. I hold my hands up to that. But he said something like, the time sinks or the time drains are gone. Um, He sort of implied that, like, you know, he is trying to streamline uh, things so that he has less time caught up dealing with unnecessary matters. Mm. And I couldn't help but think of, you know, if you're handling a problematic player, that can very much become one of those things. Um, I I think the character has been a big component. I mean, he was asked about Ramsdale, wasn't he? And he said, "I, I watched... I watched lots of games and saw how he reacted when he conceded a goal mm. when you made a mistake. Uh, and I, you'd imagine if he's doing that for a goalkeeper, he's probably doing that with with the outfield players too. For sure, yeah. Um, Particularly a 50 million centre half, you know, because well, where, where yeah. a mistake, your ability to deal with mistakes and defensive lapses is a really important part of, of how good you can become as a central defender because as much as we look at things through rose-tinted glasses, some of the best defenders that we've ever had at this football club, whether it's David O'Leary or Tony Adams or Steve Bold or Lauren Koscielny or Per Mertesacker or even Saul Campbell, Colo Toure, these guys, they weren't flawless. They weren't mm. flawless, but mistakes didn't destroy them, whereas you can think of central defenders who've come obviously been talented young players who had potential and maybe could have gone on to become top class central defenders didn't have that ability to deal with mistakes Mm -hmm. it got to them it got to their 
the soul of their defensive psyche. And they couldn't cope with that. So I think that's... Yeah, I think that has been a factor. And I I agree that they all seem quite strong characters. Um, Yeah, I think the recruitment thing is fascinating. I mean, you know, I think as fans, what we really want to see is a coherent logic. Mm. And sometimes the signing won't, won't work out. You know, if Tommy Asu had turned up and had been on a round, run of bad form and not met the level, I think there would be frustration, but then mm. that would be offset by the fact that, but we understand why they did the deal. You know, we could see that theoretically he fit the system. He was the right age. He was a sensible price. All those things are sort of in the positive column. So even if it doesn't pan out as anticipated, mm. at least we understand why and at least uh we can sort of you know make a clear logical case for the decisions that have been taken mm. yeah it's 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 an interesting area and one in which is developing because arsenal you might have seen headlines over the summer they've added more scouts back into the team now so that is a a, a team that is small but growing and you know there's a relationship obviously between recruitment and the coaching staff mm. you know i think Edu and his department will have opinions on players and Arteta and his coaches will have their own. And I think clearly what has to happen is they find or try to find consensus across that. And so far that seems to have been quite healthy debate with some good results. So I'm encouraged again, but also very mindful that the next few windows for this team also feel pretty significant. Um, Yeah. Speaking of which, let's finish on a highly speculative transfer story because we haven't had one of those for a while. Josh, who's at Josh Robinson 87, says, Di Marzio broke the news that we are close to striking a deal for Dusan Vlaovic. Would you welcome this addition? And what makes him the greatest striker the world has ever seen if he joins us? Um, (laughs) So I don't, I mean, again, it's hard to know exactly how much... uh, veracity there is to reports of our interest or or closeness to a deal or anything like that but a 21 year old striker who's a real physical presence what is he about six three something like that he's a big guy um i mean it does make some sense when we think about the evolution of this team and the kind of striker maybe that Mikel arteta ideally once in his team because I think you said it before that some kind of Lacazette Aubameyang hybrid is is probably what he wants from his center forward whether Vlaovic is exactly that I, I don't know but um, it's an interesting link isn't it it is yeah and, and I think we'll hear about other center forwards you know related to Arsenal over the next few months probably leading into next summer um, I don't know how close this one is. I don't get the impression uh, from what I'm hearing that it is especially close. I think Vlavic is a player, his contract's up in 2023 and so far he has given no indication that he wants to sign a new one. I think Fiorentina recognise they're going to have to sell him Mm. and I think there will be a bit of a public uh, auction probably for his services. I would not be remotely surprised if Arsenal were in the mix just because he's a very good player and they need a centre forward. But I don't think they'll be alone. I think there'll be big teams, other big teams in England and big teams in Italy as well across that situation. Um, And it might suit Fiorentina for there to be lots of public interested parties when it comes to driving up that price. But I, I do think that Arsenal 
will sign a centre forward next summer, and I I think it could be in that sort of price bracket. I really do. I think if you look at the level of investment we saw this summer, mm. and you think about the fact that hopefully there won't be as much uh, such a scale of work to undertake next summer, I think there could be substantial resource to divert into a centre forward, especially if we can supplement that with European football as well. That mm. would throw another few million in the pot. So yeah, I, I think Arsenal. I think Arsenal will buy a striker next summer, and I think it will be, you know, for a fee north of fifty million quid. Wow. Definitely, bit of a you know, obviously connection between Fiorentina and Arsenal at the moment as well because of Lucas Torreira. So whether that has any well, part yeah, to play I mean, in this, yeah. I don't know. He's doing quite well from what I gather. Um, just getting more football than he did at Atlas Madrid anyway, so please for him in that regard. Couldn't be hard, in fairness. <laughs> okay. no. All right, look, we had better leave it there. Uh, we've been going a while, so uh, as ever, thank you very much indeed, guys, uh, for being here. Uh, lots of stuff to come. We're going to do some Patreon stuff this week as well, so if you fancy, patreon.com forward slash arsblog. As ever, thank you for listening, downloading, and all the rest, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.